Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code ARCPODNETFEED at liquidiv.com. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And my trowel. Hello and welcome to episode two of And My Trowel, where we look at the fantastic side of archaeology and the archaeological side of fantasy. My name is Tilly. And I'm Ash. And today we will be looking at the golems featured in Terry Pratchett's Discworld. I did mention these very briefly last episode, so hopefully you were all paying attention. There are therefore spoilers for any of the books in this Discworld series that feature golems, so specifically Feet of Clay and Making Money, which I also talked about last episode. So, Ash, a little scenario for you. Ooh. You're an archaeologist, of course. You're working in Ankh-Morpork, the allegedly greatest city on the Discworld. <laughs> You're sitting in your tiny office opposite the Opera House, trying to ignore the warbling attempts of their newest soprano. And you're cataloging the finds from an excavation that's currently going on in the neighboring country of Clatch. Suddenly, the door is flung open and in walks a very dust-covered woman, wheeling behind her what you think at first is a life-size clay statue. However, you soon realize that actually this statue is not on wheels, it's walking all by itself. The woman waits until it's standing right in front of your desk, then looks at you and says, this needs to be cataloged. We couldn't work out how to do that at the dig, so we thought it best left to you. And with that, she turns on her heel and sweeps out of the room again, leaving only a lingering cloud of dusk and the silent, towering clay figure. Oh so. <laughs> Exciting. <laughs> First of all, do you know what a golem? Have you read books featuring a golem before? I've Well, I've read Making Money. Mm-hmm. Yes, true, 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 true. And I think there's the golem and the genie. Yes, I've that, heard of that one. I haven't read it, actually. I've got, I've got it on my TBR. Oh. Ah, <laughs> that, that's never, never growing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, I haven't really. I know about them. Yeah. I know, like, the mythology around them. But I don't know much about golems. No, I don't. Okay. Well, just a bit of background. So the origins of the golem come from Jewish mythology and folklore. Mm -hmm. They were often created to be the protectors of Jewish people. So that's how they originally began. Over time, this idea, this concept has then spread outside of Judaism to also become incorporated into all kinds of fantasy literature, but also historic fiction involving Jews. There's some really interesting works that involve a little bit of kind of fantastical historic fiction. They're, they're really good. And so golems also feature in books like uh, The Golem and the Genie that you mentioned, 2013 mm-hmm. by Helena Wecker. Um, and there's also the very famous The Golem, 1915, which was written by Gustav Meiring. But indeed, today we're focusing on the concept of the golem as described by Terry Pratchett in his books based in the Discworld. And they are very much based on the original like Jewish mythology. So they are ancient statues made from clay, that were brought to life by priests through magical words that were written down and put in their head. 
in Discworld, this is the Omnium priests who would have uh, written the words and put them in their head. And nowadays they're just used in the modern Discworld as kind of free labor, basically slaves. Although this does change slightly throughout the course of the series. Don't want to ruin it too much, so I won't give too much away now. But uh, the main point and the reason why this might be a complicated scenario for you, Ash, is that are they alive or are they just objects? Because in the books, there's this whole thing about that golems are sort of unholy because they're seen as alive. So a lot of people think that you shouldn't treat them as people because they're just clay. Um, And I do want to read to you a very quick quote before we get into uh, how you would approach this scenario. So this quote comes from page 329 of the Golan's edition of Feet of Clay by Terry Pratchett. We're not listening to you. You're not even really alive, said a priest. Dorful, who, by the way, is a golem, nodded. This is fundamentally true, he said. You see, he admits it. I suggest you take me and smash me and grind the bits into fragments and pound the fragments into powder and mill them again to the finest dust there can be. And I believe you will not find a single atom of life. True, let's do it. However... In order to test this fully, one of you must volunteer to undergo the same process. There was silence. That's not fair, said a priest after a while. All anyone has to do is make up your dust again and you'll be alive. There was more silence. Ridcully said, is it only me or are we on tricky theological ground here? (laughs) End of quote. (laughs) So, Ash, as an archaeologist, how do you think you would first approach this concept? Okay, first of all, I want to tell you that your your golem voice is fantastic. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> I was really enjoying that. <laughs> appreciate it. Appreciate yeah. it. Oh, how would you approach it? I mean, it's sentient though, right? Golems? This is the I question. Mean, <laughs> even with the note in the, the back of the, the, in the mouth or the neck or in the head, it seems like it can still think and it can reason within the disc world. So I don't know. It's sort of both. Maybe it's an object that has agency, more agency than objects usually do have. Oh, oh my God. I'm glad you mentioned those words. We'll come back (laughs) to them later. (laughs) Have I stumbled upon something? You may have done. You may have done. (laughs) But I like that your, uh, your thing of, is it sentient? Because I mean, that's sort of related a little bit to the whole issue of like if we look more in sci-fi, I guess, and there's mm. all the robots. I mean, are robots tools? Like, are they objects? Would archaeologists classify them as things or are they people? Well, that's the thing. There's a lot, a lot of media about robots and if they are indeed sentient and AI and everything, which is, again, tricky theological ground. And we are archaeologists, not theologians. But I would say that if an object can speak to you, maybe not like Alexa, God, I hope she doesn't turn on right now, (laughs) then it might be different. It's difficult. It's a difficult one, Tilly. I can't think. I really can't. I think it depends on what your your opinion is of an object and what Mm -hmm. an object should do. And if it is sentient, then it surely has a voice and it surely can speak up for itself. So yeah, I think it's a being mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. well and again and i mean robots we've sort of gone a bit off piste here so i'm not sure i'm trying to think of of ones i mean there's all the very famous robots and aliens ones where they're just programmed and i mean i've had this conversation so many times mm. with my husband who likes to play devil's advocate in every single situation which gets me very <laughs> angry but um so, i have one of those too <laughs> oh gosh and it's like for goodness sake where and he's going no we're having a 
fun discussion. I'm like, no, we're not. We're having an <laughs> argument. You've now made me really angry because you're not agreeing with my point. Um, it's like, it's just hypothetical. It's like, no, it's not. How can you see it? It's not. Way? It's my life. Exactly. <laughs> but so, yeah. And his thing was always, okay, but if it's not actually a, a being, it's just following a program. Like it's like a program on the computer, mm. which then you could argue that the golems are also sort of just following a program in a way because they are like, they're almost like a computer maybe because they just have these words in their head, which tell them what their kind of prerogative is. Well, yeah. Yeah. They're like a prehistoric clay robot. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I imagine it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I suppose, I mean, if you look at like the media in, I can't think of iRobot, for example, Mm -hmm. that's a a good one that kind of poses that theological question of what is life. And does it matter if it's man-made? Um, and but the thing is, with object agency, we do we believe that objects have agency, regardless of if they're attached to a human or not. They have their mm-hmm. own agency, their own way of being, and their purpose as well, which is often attached to that purpose. And the purpose mm-hmm. changes what an, what an object is. So yes, initially it could start out as clay, as just lumps of clay, very similar to kind of Greek mythology where we are just mm. lumps of clay. That's true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, you know, get built up into something that looks humanoid, uh, mm-hmm. human-like, and then is given a spark of life. Mm. So, yeah, I think I think it's sentient. I'm going I'm to put it down there. <laughs> Putting <laughs> it down as sentient. sentient in I your think notes. it's sentient. Yeah. So then what if can... I'm coming in to make this more complicated? <laughs> so, oh, because <laughs> the golems, for example, are made into an image of a man, indeed. So mm. it's easier to see them as sentient because they look like us, right? But mm. what if then it is in the image of, I don't know, a box? Like it's just it's just a little box with little legs, I think still um, sentient. Just because it doesn't look like us doesn't mean that it's not sentient. Mm-hmm. Like and you can see that with animals as well. Like they're still living there you go. things. Yeah, that works. But also, I'd say in this quote that you've just perfectly mm-hmm. read out mm-hmm. um, in a beautiful voice. <laughs> I think they're almost more. They're um, what's the word? Not more human, but they have ability to come back again, don't they? They have more mm-hmm. life than a human life. Essentially, it feels mm. like that anyway. Since they can, you know, be ground up into dust, reformed, and would they be the same person? Mm. I, I I think actually they have so in uh, so again spoiler for Feet of Clay so in that one Dorfel who is the main one who's speaking in this one so that's also interesting in that originally golems were not given a tongue so they were not uh, they could not speak they couldn't speak yeah no and then in this book it's the first time uh, because Dorfel ends up performing an action which ends up getting himself for want of a better word killed so he Awful. yeah i know i'm very sorry and again spoiler but <laughs> it's a bit late to say spoiler now but anyway i did say spoiler He's at the dead, beginning of the he? episode He's yeah. dead. You've ruined it. <laughs> um but then he is reformed so they take mm. him to a, a potter and he has a big proper oven for it and they kind of build him up again and they re they rebake him um basically and they add a tongue so that's also why the priests are particularly angry in this quote that i read out because they've given him a tongue so they're saying this is ridiculous this is unholy and all this kind of stuff because yeah they're saying how could you give this thing a tongue which because they don't see him as a person they see him as a thing but then like you say it's what what is a person is it the soul is it the ability to 
respond? Is it um, the yeah? How how would you yeah. define that archaeologically? <laughs> so Ooh, maybe that's into the, the next realms. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but we, we do need to have a little think about this actually. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is actually something that might keep me up at night because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure um, how it is. So, but yeah, so it, so we've talked about the fact that then it's it's unsure, but we probably would count him as as a, a person rather than an object. Then in the catalogue, yes, yeah, but both, <laughs> both, both, but both. He can be both. Hmm. Okay. There's, okay. There's no reason why he couldn't be both. He's sentient, but he's also perhaps he cannot be objectified. But he is an object in the fact that, like anyone else, could be an object. Really. Oh God, this is this is going deep. This is well, not what I, I thought would happen on the first episode. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> we should have left this for like number six. <laughs> well, and I do think it's a it's so. I mean, we'll have a very brief chat about this, but the philosophical concepts are indeed often quite a big part of archaeology, though, oh, and like archaeological yeah. interpretation, because as we sort of mentioned a little bit in our very first episode, all of our interpretation is very much biased. We don't see things in the same way that other people might see things, mm-hmm. which we're going to talk about this more in future episodes. <laughs> so yes. I won't go too much detail <laughs> at the moment. But um, yeah, there's there's lots of concepts like gender, time, value, which we talked a bit about last episode that we consider mm-hmm. as like moot points. Like, of course, it's this way in the modern world. But actually, how would we have known that they would have had the same experience of that in the past? Exactly. They see things differently. Just because we are humans, we think mm-hmm. that there's a collective thought process and belief, but there's actually not. Yeah, um, It's very detached and it's really difficult to kind of... I remember when I started archaeology... I couldn't get my head around it. Yeah. But then over time, you sort of learn that actually people in the past are very different to you. But say the same at the same time, you can still empathize with them and understand them, but they have a different way of seeing the world and interacting with that world. And often it's more fuller. It's a fuller mm. so kind of life way. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Which again, is like fantasy. I mean, it's like trying yeah. to understand the fantasy world, basically. Exactly. Because yeah. they have a different law, they have different background. And I guess the difference is most fantasy books are written by modern or relatively modern authors. So they do still have that link to modern the... Modern morality to it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But now go back 5,000 years <laughs> and... Yeah. Mm-hmm. who knows <laughs> who knows it could be completely different i like to think it's probably better but that's just me <laughs> that's always the, the romanticism of the past is, is one of these things oh just take me back to the mesolithic yeah. <laughs> god no i'd probably die straight away but, that's what um, i think i would be the first to be sacrificed into the bog <laughs> <laughs> yeah like very difficult <laughs> a difficult time i know but yeah that's it's an interesting thing and how would they look at objects they would look at objects very differently than we would perhaps there's lots of mm-hmm. different kind of clay objects that you find, like the the Venus of Willendorf or the Westry, well, Westry, she's st- stone. Those kind of objects, those figures are made by human hands, but they're, they're seen differently. We would see it as just an object and we often see it as a ritual thing, mm-hmm. which all archaeologists will have a laugh at because it is always ritual. If we don't know <laughs> something, it's just ritual. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that we don't know what that means. So 
what does the Venus of Wildendorf mean to someone who made it? Is it a reflection of themselves? Is that like the golem? Is the golem a reflection of us? Is it like a God's creation kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And I don't want to get into God, but but that's basically what they're talking about, isn't it? That yeah. There's a theological discussion there of that we are almost godlike to them and we have to bestow them with a tongue, which mm. seems wrong in a way, doesn't it? That yeah. they, we can limit a sentient life form's if it indeed it is yeah, a sentient life form. If indeed so it is, is a question. <laughs> and I like when you Kids. mentioned the Venus figurines and it's like, what would they have meant to people in the past? But then you also have me being devil's advocate now. Well, not really, but um, me <laughs> offering the, the alternative view that sometimes we would look at something like that and think, oh, this must have been an important object, a ritual object, something significant. But maybe it's actually just a little figurine that someone made one day, you know? Like well, yeah, it's... totally. But I think we can see that as archaeologists. We know what, perhaps this is just, again, this whole question of how we interpret things. Mm. But if you're looking at the Venus of Willendorf, she's been carefully deposited and she's being covered in ochre. She's been kind of almost wrapped up. Which is, ochre is? Uh... Well, it's a natural clay earth pigment. Okay. It has different colours, but um, it's usually kind of a turmeric colour. Um, it has a ferric oxide and very amounts of sand and clay in it. So to people in the past and prehistory, you find ochre a lot around ritual uh, depositions. You find them in graves, especially around the person. We mm. don't know why and what it means. or Ritual. How, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's ritual. <laughs> um, but there's different shades of it. So for the Venus of Willendorf, she was placed quite carefully in a settlement site, almost like uh, well, the theory is to sort of signal the end of that settlement. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's quite interesting because she doesn't have a lot of wear pattern on her. So she has been, we think, she's been made specifically for that that purpose oh, to be buried basically. to be buried to oh. or she's or she's been sitting on something where people have looked at her mm. which sort of goes against the other venuses where you've got kind of maybe it's an embodiment of someone of our reflection of ourself of womanhood and all that kind of stuff mm. so the, the golem what is their kind of function hmm. to, is, is it just free labor is that it basically i mean they're basically tools in that form right. they each have sort of a different a different tool i think we need a moment to work out how we'd approach yeah, this so let's have a little look do. in our scrolls <laughs> give us a minute everyone we'll be right back <laughs> welcome back everyone so now that we know a little bit more about golems our understanding maybe of what a golem is let's talk a little bit more about how exactly we would look at that as an archaeologist. And Ash touched on something very important earlier, which I think we need to revert back to, which is the idea of object agency. What is object agency, Tilly? Well, I'm so glad you asked that, (laughs) because I happen to have another little quote here, uh, which is uh, from page 13 of Meryl Shriver Rice's paper on materiality, objects and agency, examples from anthropology and archaeology. And the quote is... Archaeologists have always understood that material culture is instrumental to how people create, experience, give meaning to, negotiate, and transform their world. But rather than analyzing only pragmatic and functional terms, it is now becoming more appreciated that material culture is, and was in the past, meaningful to the degree that it could even act back, so to speak, on its makers and users with its own form of agency. End quote. I.e., Things are not just inanimate objects, but may have been 
sort of almost active subjects in a way, which had just as much of an influence on the past as humans did and may even have shaped the way that human society developed. So yes, with this in mind, Ash, any Mm -hmm. thoughts? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to look at objects as beings almost in themselves. So they have their own agency. They impact events all the time. Well, you could think of things like your wedding ring your engagement rings the meanings behind them Mm. how it's been worn so like you know if you get your granny's engagement ring or wedding ring and you're looking at it like for example i wear rings right Mm -hmm. and it actually takes the form of your finger that's true yeah yeah, yeah. when you're working and you're using it it takes the form of your finger so initially what it started out was this perfect oval but then over time it molds to you that's having its own agency it's it's impacting something other than what it was meant to be. So it changes its biography as time goes on. The functionality changes, the meanings behind it changes. Hmm. It's how we view objects and how, oh yeah. And I guess even if like, for example, you talked about your grandmother's, you know, engagement ring, that in itself, even if you don't wear it as a ring, that already has so much meaning. Meaning, like imagine Mm -hmm. your mom, you know, gives to you your grandmother's engagement ring. Like if she would just give you a, a ring, You'd be like, oh, cool. Thanks, mom. But if she would give you your grandmother's engagement, right? You know, that, that, that transaction is already then so much deeper. (laughs) Yeah. It has a a deeper connection, a deeper meaning, but then it also has its own agency because of that meaning, Mm -hmm. um, which changes for different people. So your grandmother's wedding ring or engagement ring to me is different. Yes. Oh, that's a nice ring. Yeah. That's like, how right. oh, dare you? This is my grandmother's engagement. <laughs> exactly. So it's different meanings to different peoples. And it's the type of meaning that we give to things in the past that that kind of makes it act back or makes it create or creates its own form of agency. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned briefly that idea as well in that quote was mentioned that sort of it could act back on its makers as well and users with its own form of agency. So actually I was even just looking at my fingers. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of rings that I've worn for so long that yes, the ring have has kind of worn, but also my finger has actually changed. Changed. Yeah. <laughs> like it's like I play the French horn and there's a little, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, like a hook that you put your pinky in to hold mm-hmm. the horn when you're playing it. And my, so my pinky on my left hand, from where I've been doing that is slightly warped, like it's yeah. slightly dented. Yeah, <laughs> people have that from phones and things like that. Yeah. Modern technology, it impacts back on you. It's all part of Hodder's entanglement kind of theory, mm. isn't it, as well? Yes. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's interesting how objects react back to us. Even though we create them, no object that you have sitting in, you know, if you're in your, in your living room right now, or if you're on your de- at your desk, are you at work? All the objects that you've touched have been made by humans or machines. And or golems. You would, oh, golems. Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> it's all no. linked. It's all coming together. Yes, yeah, sorry, carry on. Uh, no, so they've been made by a human hand or they've been made by a machine that's been made by a human hand or designed mm. by. So everything that you see before you would not be here if we weren't here. But that doesn't mean that it's intrinsically linked to us now. Mm. It's like creating something. Yeah. Uh, it has its own form of biography, its own form of agency, and it will change. That's and indeed that's also and you can already see that, right? Just even over the last like hundred years, you can see how different society has become 
based on the objects, like the the, the increase yeah. in mobile phones. Suddenly, everything's on the app and everything is mobile and everything's online. Like there's so much. So human mm-hmm. society is, has been intrinsically changed by the introduction of different objects. Exactly. Yeah. They're active now within our society. Yeah. They have just as much influence as we do on the society as well. Actually, I think in the modern age, they have more influence a lot of the time. Big technological changes happen in the past because of objects. Um, mm. You know, you if you look at it very binary, you're looking at like Bronze Age into True. Um, Iron Age. And, yeah, classified by their objects. They yeah. are. They're classified by it. And that age wouldn't really exist or our concept of that age wouldn't exist without the object. So for, for golems, they would fit, even though they're in a kind of fantasy world, they would easily fit into a prehistoric world, actually, I think. Hmm. They are they have kind of prehistoric attributes, don't they? And then that's because of their mythology and that's because of their culture. And the Jewish culture is so rich and vast and and it comes from very like thousands of years ago so yeah yeah, it has this impact and we see what we're talking about right now and golems we see it very differently to how people in the past would have seen a golem they're seen as protectors well terry pratchett's Discworld sees them as free labor you know it's it's really interesting how how objects just in that case can change so dramatically Mm. yeah no that's true and I mean, I think it would also be good to give so some examples from from the modern day, but from different societies. So, for example, there's a culture called the Kula, and there was a lot of anthropological sort of ethnographic studies done on this culture, um, especially by the famous anthropologist Nancy Munn, because they have a really interesting example of this exchange system. They live on these different islands, and they have this exchange system where an object, a, a shell necklace specifically, will take on the experience and the value of the people who previously owned it. So wow. if you have a, a necklace and then you pass it on to someone else, your value is then attributed to that other person through the necklace, if that makes sense. So, oh so the necklace that you get is really important and it's not it's nothing to do with the people anymore it's to do with the necklace completely like that's that's the important part and that's in you know in the modern world <laughs> that that uh, that is still happening but that's also happening in in kind of western society but it's a bit more hidden i guess because we don't we see it more capitalistic <laughs> but mm-hmm. that's a sort of a nice example i thought of of object agency and that's usually one of the main examples given when trying to explain what object agency is. So Mm -hmm. how we value ourselves is quite often attributed to the things that we have. And in this particular culture, that's essential. Like without these shell necklaces, would you have a value? Like uh, that's the sort of the question. And some could argue the same in our modern society, that actually without these objects, without things, would we still function? Well, capitalism would cease to exist, wouldn't it, really? I mean, capitalism is just an accumulation of stuff. Um, Yeah. yeah, And so the the more stuff you have and the more you show it, which is very prehistoric, actually, very Iron Age kind of idea, Mm. I think. Um, Look at all all these horses I have and look at all these swords I have that I'm going to be buried with. Like, that's the same thing for capitalism now. And yeah, it, it relates to the modern... But... Weirdly enough, I'd say that there's also a contrast to that, which connects more to the ethnographic kind of example where, you know, we're talking about the wedding ring, the value of that, your value instantly goes up because somebody believes that you are worth giving this ring to. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Especially if your grandmother's ring, you're entrusted with it. 
So you're entrusted with the value of that person as well. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, if we look at other fantasy, um, when I was actually making this and I was thinking, Golems, the perfect oh, object agency, amazing. And then I was also thinking about rings and thought, oh, there's, there's one very obvious example of an object with agency. That's a ring. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry, was that really too menacing? On. <laughs> so anyway, so indeed, the one ring from yeah. the Lord of the Rings, probably the best example of this, actually. I mean, taken to the extreme, one might say, because it's literally kind of warping the minds of the people who have it and and kind of it, it has a will of its own indeed hence the title yes. of this episode but i think that that and there's also for example um in the hobbit the the arkenstone yes yeah mm-hmm. is uh you know that's also kind of uh, objects of power and people fight over them yeah. and things like thrones you know as well like those are very you know in game of thrones the iron throne right that sort of almost has its own agency Mm-hmm. as yeah. well i don't know if you have any other other examples from your reading of uh of i mean there's so many if you think about any kind of fantasy stuff it always right. there's always a quest and it's usually to, to get an object like excalibur right you know yeah. if you're going to if you're king arthur you're arthur young boy and you want to become king or whatever and you pull the sword from the stone that sword means you're king that has yeah. its own agency if you don't have that sword you are not king yeah you have no value so yeah, it's a it's an important one, and it's interesting how much that's actually in fiction and in our own world, and it's an archaeological concept that we can actually discuss. Yes, really yeah. easily. <laughs> yeah. So so, but hopefully, indeed, this means that anyone who's listening who is thinking, oh god, what is object agency? I don't understand it at all. Indeed, just think of fantasy. <laughs> There's so many yeah. examples of object agency. Yeah. And then we could apply that indeed to the real world. So, well, so this is a side note, but Gollum and Golem. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the references just continue to stack yeah. up. <laughs> Someone's going to email us and be like, they're exactly the same. They come from the same thing. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so to me, the Golems were the sort of a really nice literal representation of object agency because they mm-hmm. are objects, but indeed, they're sort of semi sentient. So, I think that they're important in terms of looking at the modern world as well, like through this sort of fantasy concept, because it helps you indeed to understand that how we picture objects today and what we see of them today is not necessarily how people would have dealt with and interacted with these objects in the past and the agency that they would have had on people in the past. So long story short, it's important not to make assumptions on how something should be treated (laughs) just because you see it in one way. Someone else might have seen it in completely different which uh, now that we've worked that out, (laughs) are we any closer to being able to catalogue this golem that you have standing in your office? Maybe we should just ask it. True. Yeah. Good idea. (laughs) He sounds really sentient. So, and like clever. So he'll know. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's ask him. Let's ask. The golem's eyes flare with a deep red fire as it gazes down at you. The room seems to suddenly shrink. A distant thudding beat echoes from outside the walls. The golem leans forward. Its eyes seem to fill your whole vision. Flickering fire consumes you. I was a trouser press, the golem says in a deep, (laughs) rumbling voice. The flames fade, becoming no more than eyes as it straightens back up and waits patiently. The beat outside turns out to be nothing more than the troll postman knocking at your door. You clear your throat in embarrassment, make a note in your catalogue and file it away with the others. That's good. Done. (laughs) Done. Sorted. Sorted. (laughs) Great. Well, then that's about it for this uh, second episode of And My Trowel. 
We hope that you enjoyed this quest. If there's any suggestions, as always, that people have for an episode, maybe an idea from a fantasy book, an archaeological theory or concept, such as object agency, that you don't understand, that maybe we can offer some suggestions for understanding through fantasy. Maybe there's something in a book you want to think about from an archaeological standpoint. Just get in contact or contact info, as well as any references and further reading for all of the points we've discussed today can be found in the show notes. Oh, Tilly, did you just get really cold? Cold? Yeah, really cold. Really cold? Actually, it is quite cold. That's true. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think we're going to need something other than a trowel for the next quest. Oh, I think okay. maybe I need to call someone. Who are you going to call? I don't know. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.